This morning we're continuing in the church's study of worship and how worship fits into the big story, into the, what it means to be the church. Uh, the title of the overall series, of course, is Where Your Treasure Is. So this idea of treasuring something, and maybe the Holy Spirit, as we go through walk with him, he exposes to us treasures we have that aren't the real treasure. And the time will come we have to give up those so-called treasures or the lowercase t in order to really tap into the ultimate treasure, Christ himself, treasure with an uppercase t. And that's what this morning is all about. We want to look at worship in the form, the whole series is about worship, this morning we want to concentrate on worship in, the, in a specific form, namely sacrifice. And a good place to start, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies. See, there's this idea here of sacrifice, an offering. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God for this is, that's what the the flow means here, for this act of presenting your bodies, that is itself an act of spiritual worship. When he says spiritual, he doesn't mean that if we do something physical, that doesn't count what he's The reason he says that, particularly at this point in the book of Romans, he uses this phrase, spiritual act of worship, is to distinguish it from what had gone before in Israel's history, where sacrifices and offerings had to do with physical things you would bring to the temple, an animal or an armload of of wheat from your fields, something like that. But now we're called by Paul and by God to offer our bodies which is code for offering yourself. That's how we worship. That's the spiritual act of worship. As we look at this, we'll see that this idea of worship in the form of sacrifice, worship as sacrifice, unfolds in three distinct ideas. We want to spend a few minutes on each one. Worship, worship as sacrifice, offers something. Second, worship as sacrifice offers something good, something that we would value, something that has value. This is a a key to this whole thing. I was really struck by how biblical this idea is, point two. Then the third point, worship as sacrifice opens the way for God to move. It opens the way for God to move. So let's have a look. Worship as sacrifice offers something. This idea runs right through Scripture. We could do a three-week series just on that idea. (laughs) We're just going to spend a few minutes. A good place to start is way back in Genesis 8, when Noah and his family emerged from the ark after the great flood. And Noah, the first thing he does is build an altar, an altar of worship, to worship the Lord that has not just spared Noah and his sons, but has thereby spared the whole human race 
from extinction. Did you ever think about that? If it hadn't been for the ark and for, for Noah, we wouldn't exist. The human race would have been extinguished. So he worships this God who has preserved the human race even in the face of his own holy wrath against the human race. And he brings what are called burnt offerings. You make an offering to the Lord, an animal or a sheaf of wheat or something like that. You set it on the altar and then you light it on fire. It's a burnt offering. When, when you do a burnt offering, there's nothing left. And that's part of the point. You are relinquishing it to God. Then fast forward all the way up to the New Testament. The reason for everything that happened with Noah was in fact to preserve the world until God's appointed moment of salvation came through Christ. Now that moment has come in Mark 14. Christ has come to Jerusalem He's less than 24 hours from being crucified. The woman in Mark 14 comes into the house. It's interesting the details Mark brings in. It's in the house of a leper. A lot of people in those days, observant Jews, wouldn't have even walked through the door. Jesus is there having a meal. This woman comes in with an alabaster jar. I looked up. I didn't know what alabaster was. I found out it's something like soapstone. You may know Inuit um, carvers and artists use soapstone to make sculptures and alabaster is not unlike that and it's very very valuable she had a, an alabaster jar full of costly ointment she pours it onto Jesus's head she breaks the jar and pours it on his head she is relinquishing something. People that are there at the, at the dinner, at the meal, including some of Jesus' own disciples, if you reference Matthew's account, the, his own disciples are grumbling about this extravagant form of worship. This money could have been given. She could have sold that perfume or that ointment, given it to the poor. It's the equivalent of a year's wage, what it would have been worth. And they're, they're, they're grumbling the point there being, one, the disciples don't see how worthy their Lord Jesus is. But secondly, she understands worship. To worship means to offer something. And the, the verb there, pour out, means it's gone, brother. She pours it onto Christ's head. You can just sort of see it going down over his head, onto his shoulders, and then it's gone. Those offerings that Noah put on the altar, they were gone. This perfume or ointment is now gone. Back to burnt offerings briefly. My computer or the Bible software says that the, the phrase burnt offering, it was a particular kind of offering, is mentioned uh, 240 times in the Old Testament. So it's a, it's a major component of the tabernacle worship and then the temple, the temple worship after uh, the temple replaced the tabernacle. The idea is something being put on the altar, set on fire, and the fire consumes it. That, that's the idea of the burnt offering. The offering got consumed. There was nothing left. Whatever you set on the altar... You were relinquishing it. You didn't even get to keep the smoke. Because <laughs> the smoke went up to God. 
We're going to come back to that in a moment because it says when Noah offered his burnt offerings, God smelled it. And he makes a hugely important promise on the back of that. We'll come back to that. Just think of relinquishing something. About two years, maybe three, after I became a Christian, I attended an InterVarsity missions conference. Maybe some of you have been to one of these. It's in Urbana, Illinois, just outside Chicago. I think there were 15,000 people at this thing. It was a very, very motivational, inspiring conference about missions, three or four days long. They do them every three years, every third year in Urbana. The final night of this, uh, remember, I was only three years old as a Christian, max. They encouraged us to surrender our future to the Lord. The speaker, I forget who it was, he said, you know what, we don't want you going away from this conference wrestling with which mission agency should I go to, uh, what country should I go to, should I work here in my home country, or should I go overseas. He said this, he said, what God is after is, will you offer him your future? Will you relinquish the rest of your life? The whole evening message is about that. And finally at the end, there was the moment to demonstrate if we were willing and prepared to do that. And many, many, many hundreds of students, mostly university age, stood up to do that. And I was one of them. I think since that evening, I've never had as strong a sense of safety as I did that night when I stood up. Because I thought, well, I'm putting my future in God's hands. Look what he did. He sent me to Canada. (laughs) To Winnipeg. I work with Norm. (laughs) Maybe good I didn't know what was coming. There's a sacrifice. Yeah, sacrifice. The sense of profound safety came over me. I realized, okay, I've put myself in God's hands, my future in God's hands, to the best of my ability. I'm relinquishing all claim to the rest of my life. And that means it's God's responsibility now to look after me. I felt safe. Saints, when we offer something to God, we relinquish it. Just remember, you didn't even get to keep the smoke. When we give something to God, we offer it to him. Point two. Worship as a sacrifice offers not just whatever. It offers something good. Our bodies are good. God made them. So we're offering something good when we do that. One of the most dramatic, emotionally dramatic examples of this in Scripture is Abram, when he was still called Abram, offering his own son, Isaac. You better believe there was a wrestling match the night before all of that in Abram's heart. It's unthinkable. But he knew he had to do it because God is worthy. And what did he set on that altar? Not just something good, something supremely good. And you know the story, I trust you. At the last moment, he's got the knife and he's about to slay his own son. And the angel comes and grabs Abram's wrist. 
says no. God has provided a different sacrifice. And there's a ram caught in the thicket, a powerful prophetic picture of Christ substituting himself for us so that we're not, uh, we don't die. But what did he put on that altar? Something good. Later in the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 1 verse 2, it's the beginning of the many instructions about burnt offerings that we've already referenced And it said that the offering needed to come, quote, from the flock or from the herd. Now that odd-sounding little phrase, it maybe sounds odd to us, but it didn't back then. All that it meant was this comes from your own property, from your own resources, your own possessions. So when you brought burnt offerings, there was some kind of financial commitment They cost you something. You couldn't offer a stray animal that you had found wandering around. It had to be from your flocks or your herds. Now, if that sets us up for the idea of offerings that have worth, fast forward up to 1 Kings 8. Now, Israel's living in the land. They have a king, namely King Solomon, And he has been working for years establishing the temple to replace the mobile tabernacle. And when the grand great day comes to publicly dedicate this new temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, it's all in 1 Kings 8. It's amazing stuff. Have a read of it. (coughs) All the meds the doctor has me on make me thirsty, so just bear with me. They bring thousands, thousands of offerings. 1 Kings 8.63, 22,000 oxen. I am for animal welfare, you know, animals being treated humanely, but I do wonder what animal rights activists would say about this ceremony here. 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. This is extravagant offering. They're offering something not just on a major scale but something good. Let's keep going. New Testament. In Matthew 13 we have a series of parables that Christ gives explaining to people what God's kingdom is all about. One of them, it's just a sentence or two long. It's in 1345 about the pearl merchant. This guy runs a pearl business. He has a pearl store. If you wanted to buy pearls, you'd go to him. Now, at some point in his dealings and pursuing his pearl business, he comes across a pearl like he's never seen. He looks at it and he says, I've never seen or even imagined a pearl like that. It's perfect. It's large He asks the guy what he wants for it, who's selling it, and the guy gives him the price, and the pearl merchant realizes, if I want that pearl, I'd have to liquidate my entire inventory. Go back to the store, collect everything, go around, sell all the pearls I've got. My shelves will be empty, but I'll have the one pearl. And that's what he does. That's exactly what he does. What is he surrendering? What is he giving up to get the supreme pearl He's giving up something good. God created pearls. There's going to be pearls in the the new Jerusalem. 
He's giving up something valuable. That's what worship is. We're primed to think when you get saved, you have to give up bad stuff. And of course, we do. But we also have to surrender good stuff. Bear with me for a moment. I've got to take one of my slippery elms so I don't... I don't recommend heart attacks. All the medicines they give you, they drive you nuts. <laughs> my main fear this morning, I, they prayed for me in the back room here, is that I would fall asleep in the middle of the sermon. Because <laughs> they do weird things to your heads. The Lord is faithful. Amen. He sells his pearls. Because he understands worship. He understands that worship... Is, is, means offering something, and it means offering something good. Fast forward again. We've already seen this briefly. The woman who shows up at the leper's house with the alabaster jar full of ointment, she pours it out onto Christ's head. This is an amazing moment in the Gospels. Note a little detail. I think this only emerges in Mark. She breaks the jar and pours out the perfume. In the very, very next scene, we see another breaking and pouring. You know what we're referring to. Jesus breaking a loaf. This is my body. Jesus pouring out wine, saying, this is my blood. I wonder if she had any idea, this woman, how prophetic what she was doing was. It was anticipating what he was going to do. And even what he did at the table there was anticipating the cross. There's revelation just exploding all over the place in these last hours of Christ's earthly mission. Note, it's called ointment. And Jesus defends her, he defends her extravagant worship, saying something he never said about anybody else in all four Gospels, what she has done will become part of the gospel story. Wherever the gospel is preached all over the world, what she has just done will be told in memory of her. He, this is the only time he praises someone in that way. Here's part of why it's important. It's ointment. What did you use ointment for? To anoint someone. Christ, Christ means Christos, means anointed. He was the anointed one. And this would become an anointing that no one expected the Messiah would ever need. An anointing of his dead body, which is what you did in those days when someone died. You anointed the body before burial. And he sees what she does as that. And he rebukes his own disciples, saying, she sees what you guys don't see. She's anointing me beforehand for my burial. It's an act of worship that points to his suffering. Yeah. Worship is offering something good. Now, if those two examples are good, the third one is in a class by itself. Ephesians 5.2 Paul is speaking here actually about how husbands should relate to their wives. 
But in talking about that, he refers to Christ, the ultimate bridegroom. And he says, he talks about Christ dying on the cross, and the language he uses is that he offered himself up, Ephesians 5.2, as a, quote, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That language, that, those phrases, that terminology there, Ephesians 5.2, are right out of the book of Leviticus, where God, or Moses gives the priests all these detailed instructions of how they were supposed to do fragrant offerings and sacrifices to God. Paul picks up lingo, jargon, terminology from Leviticus about worship, and he transports it into the time of Christ, and he says that's what Christ was doing when he went to the cross. Now, where the conclusion this leads us to, and the first time I saw this, I think I was gobsmacked. I thought, oh, what Paul's telling the Ephesians and us is this. Christ's death on the cross was an act of worship. In going to the cross, he was worshiping the Father. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. This is an act of worship. Worship is offering something, and worship is offering something good. Best example you'll ever get is Ephesians 5.2. Now, what does this offering of something good, or if I could rephrase it, offering something we value, what, can that look, might, that look, what might that look like for us? Something I value is my own personal space. Don't try to get into my personal space. My wife asked me once in one of those space-invading questions, why don't you sing out loud when Winter Church sings? She was invading my space by asking that question. Well, you know who else was invading my space was God. Because the moment you surrender to Christ, you ain't got no personal space. You've given it to him. Are you with me? For some of us, and I'm a prime example, this personal space thing can become an idol. It's something we desperately hold on to and don't want want it invaded. It's my something I value. Will I put it on the altar? My druthers, that's a little bit more an American term. My druthers comes from somebody saying, I would rather, I'd rather this than that. So I'd rather becomes druther. It's really my druthers. I would, I'd rather have this than that. Sometimes giving up our druthers can be hugely difficult. Things that you run into if you go onto the mission field, even a short-term mission experience. Wait till Caleb and all of them are back. I'll bet you a hundred bucks they've got stories about where their druthers, their personal space got invaded, of where they would have to sleep nights or the long days or the heat and all these different, different kinds of food. Your druthers get taken away when you go to the mission field. Your druthers get taken away when you are learning to obey Jesus. We have to give God our druthers. Nothing left but the smoke. 
And even that goes up to God. A habit. Maybe one of the things we value to a dangerous degree is habits. I get together most Wednesdays with praying with the leaders of the church and sometimes they confess what's going on. And one gentleman that's usually there, I won't mention names, but he's of Scottish extraction. said he's addicted to his phone. And the Lord had been speaking to him. He's forever. Your phone can be a habit. Facebook. You know, certain kinds of food. Coffee. Oh, Lord. <laughs> That's a biggie for me because I'm, I'm, I'm a coffee-holic. Are there things we need to seriously con- contemplate giving up to God? Something you figure... You think, I can't live without that. It's just something, the way things are done in your home or, or whatever. I, I have to have it this way. Well, maybe that way has got to go up on the altar next to Noah's burnt offerings. I almost brought along this morning a big box of wooden matches, like camping matches. I was going to pass them around and say, what do you need to light on fire? But then I was afraid we might burn the building down. So. <laughs> wisdom. Yeah, that was Wisdom. Something I can't live without. Is that something I need to learn to live without by putting it on the altar? Point point three. Worship as sacrifice opens the way for God to move. It opens the way for God to move. Here's some examples. Genesis 8. We already referred to this, I suspect, twice already. Noah's offerings. The way that chapter describes this moment, he comes out of the ark. As you'll recall, they had lots of animals in that ark. On unclean animals, they just brought two of each, a male and a female. But of clean animals, they brought seven of each. So he took from among the clean animals, the Bible says, and offered them up as offerings to the Lord. Now, what happens next? What happens next is it says God smelled the smoke. This might challenge our ideas of of God. You know, does he really smell? Literally, would he lean over the balcony of heaven and go, sniff, sniff? That's almost how the text here represents him. And he likes the fragrance It was a pleasing aroma. There are certain fragrances I love. Coffee is one of them. Curry is another. And God smelled this pleasing aroma. And then this. He said in his heart, Never again will I flood the earth. The earth will endure summer Winter, seed time, harvest, no more floods. And the the reference there to the four seasons points to the stability of the natural order. Now, the time will come when Christ returns, that whole natural order will be totally, totally renewed. 
There will be a new heaven and a new earth. But until that climactic moment, it's going to continue. The world is going to be preserved. It will be stable. There's even things to ensure uh, social stability. That's where God introduces in, in Genesis 9, in the next chapter, um, penalties for crime. That there's going to be a civil order, a civil a government, civil structures that will enforce crime. And if, if someone kills somebody, by him shall man, if someone kills a man, by man shall that man's blood be shed. Civil penalties for crime. That, that helps ensure um, social stability. So now, because of the promises that come after the flood, we know the world, the planet, is going to continue and endure. And there's going to be social stability. What prompted those promises? What prompted those promises was Noah's offerings. The Lord smelled the the aroma and he said in his heart. It was worship, worship in the form of sacrifices that provoked God to make those promises. Okay, do you see what Scripture is showing us here? Worship in the form of sacrifice opens the way for God to move. Those sacrifices were actually part of God's own preparation and way of preparation for his promise to preserve the world. It was God's idea originally. He put it in Noah's heart and then that prompted those promises of the, the preservation of the world. I'm too long on that one example. Here's another one. Exodus 12, verse 12. God comes to Moses. This is the, in the middle of the introduction of the Passover, the very first Passover. It's the night on which God struck down the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. But in the middle of that, God says to Moses, This night... I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Wow. Spiritual warfare, warfare in the heavenly realms. I'm going to bring judgment on all the gods. And Moses is probably wondering, okay, how are you going to do that, Lord? Are you going to send lightning bolts against these Egyptian idols and the the gods they represent? What are you going to do that's going to break the power of the spiritual darkness behind Egypt. How are you going to do that, Lord? And it's like the Lord says, well, Moses, I'm glad you asked. It's going to have to do with blood on people's front doors. Those sacrifices are going to be the mechanism I will work through to break the spiritual darkness over the land of Egypt. I will bring down their gods. And then on the back of that, Pharaoh just says, oh, that's enough. I've had it with you people. Just get out of here. Just go. And they head off to the Red Sea. At the last minute, Pharaoh changes his mind. But as you know, that doesn't play out too well for him. He ends up at the bottom of the Red Sea. That final chapter or those final chapters of the book of Exodus, leaving Egypt, God breaking the power of the Egyptian darkness, were part of God responding to the sacrifices the children of Israel made on the night of the first Passover. Worship as sacrifice opens the way for God to move. I hope we'll take that home this morning. There may be things that God's, we're starting to hear a sound, but are you ready to sacrifice? 
And when we do sacrifice, something begins to happen that's bigger than that sheep I put on the altar. And the ultimate expression of sacrifice, opening the way for God to move, is Christ going to the cross. Of course, it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, once again, Ephesians 5.2. But on the back of that, through that, through that sacrifice, God provided salvation for sinners. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're sitting here with assurance of forgiveness of your sins and hope of eternal life, the reason you have those things is because of a sacrifice. A worshipful sacrifice made by Christ himself. When Velma and I lived in England, one morning at the college where we worked, one of the other staff, Mary is her name, Mary Hipsley, she invited into the college to speak a friend of hers that was visiting Oxford, the city where we lived, from Spain. He was a pastor in Spain and an evangelist. However, his real background, long before he lived in Spain, he had lived in Argentina for many years. And then he heard about an Argentinian community living in Spain for whom there was very little gospel witness. So the Lord sent him from Argentina over to Spain. And this particular week, he was up visiting and traveling around in England. Now, he came and spoke. And... His message that morning, it wasn't super academic, but we didn't need any more academics. It was, this was life-changing. It was something like this. Live your life asking God to do things only he is able to do. Live your life asking God to do things only he is able to do. So make plans assuming God's going to start doing things that only he can do. You're banking on God being supernatural. Now, he had testimony after testimony because that what gave him authority and credibility is this is how this fellow and his family lived. The example I most remember went back all the way to when he had been originally back in Argentina. I don't know what city they'd been in, but it was under the control of the local drug lords. These were not nice people. They would murder you without blinking an eye if it suited them. But he, as he was ministering, he felt the Lord say to him, I want you to address those people from the pulpit in public. I don't know if he was asked to do it by name, but he said the drug lords in this community that control everything are destroying people's lives. And so he, one Sunday he preached against the drug trade. That was Sunday morning. Wednesday evening or Wednesday night, their church was burned to the ground. Nothing left. Talk about a burnt offering. So they regrouped. They thought, what are we going to do? They met temporarily, I guess, in a hotel somewhere or whatever. And they were having a meeting one night just seeking God. They just were blown away by this because they had sacrificed and to build this church. And now it was just ashes on the ground. They were worshiping. And they knew that somewhere the funds would have to start coming from somewhere to rebuild the man's wife was standing there and he felt, she felt almost a tap on her shoulder. Maybe there's angels that go around tapping people on the shoulder. 
she senses God saying something. And without being dramatic, she wasn't melodramatic about it for the way we were told the story. She just, she went up to the front of the room and they had like a, an offering basket there. She goes up to the front and quietly slips off her wedding ring and her engagement ring and puts them in the basket. By this fellow's testimony, something, when people saw her do that, something exploded in the meeting. They rebuilt the building. And it's still having an impact locally, evangelistically, and prophetically. It was profound. It was like a launching pad for the next stage at what God was going to do in that area. Worship as sacrifice opens the way for God to move. Who knows what God might do through us? I'm not saying it's your wedding ring. It might be something that would even be harder to give up than that. This is the way God works. Let's review. Worship as sacrifice offers something. It's a relinquishing. Nothing left but the smoke, and you don't even get to keep the smoke. But it honors God. Worship as sacrifice offers something good. Remember the guy that with the, the pearl business? He gave up his entire inventory to get the pearl of great price, to know God. Worship as sacrifice opens the way for God to move. I'll close with this one thought and over to Norm. One of the ways to define worship is that it's saying God is worthy. In fact, our modern English word worship, worship, if you look at it in its original form in Old English, do you know what it was? Worth-ship. You declare, when we worship, we declare that God is worthy. And you remember what happens in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the great throne room scene. There's twice when the phrase, you are worthy, comes out. The hosts of heaven sing to him who sits, is seated on the throne, you are worthy because you created all things. They worship God for his creative power and wisdom. That's in chapter 4, I believe. You go over into chapter 5, and all of a sudden, this you are worthy thing comes out again. But this time, it's not to him who sits on the throne. It's to the one who stands in the center of the throne, the Lamb. And they sang to the Lamb and said, You are worthy to open the scroll, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed men for God. You are worthy. Here's a way to paraphrase that in modern jargon. Lord, I feel like you're asking me to surrender something to you. I don't know if I'm there yet that I could even do this, but I want to be there. I want to, Lord, I want to say, Lord, whatever you're asking of me, one thing's for sure, you're worth it. That's maybe a modern way to say, you are worthy. You are, you are worth it. I'll put my wedding ring in the offering plate. 
You are worth it. You are worth it. I'll let people into my personal space gulp because you are worth it. A couple questions to ask as we wrap up. Do I have a sheep? Do I have sheep that in my mind and heart are worth more to me than the lamb? Ponder that this afternoon. And can I offer something of value to God, something precious, and say, doesn't matter because you're worth it.